going to jump into the Bible here in a moment, uh, but I'm, I'm actually going to start with a story. And I want to warn you, this story is, it's going to sound familiar to you. It's going to maybe hit home, even recently, but I assure you it's not what it seems. So lean forward in your seat, tune your ear in, and listen closely. It's the story of a a mild fall day. There was a buzz in the air. The people were scurrying about as if there was something moving in the atmosphere. Many people that day were excited, and many people seemed to be a little nervous. Even though the temperature was moderate, there was almost this feeling like there was this impending winter storm coming. You know, the type of storm that doesn't only flow through the atmosphere, but the type of storm that sets in on the soul. And if you dug a little deeper to really decipher what it is that people were feeling, you notice that there was this under, overwhelming, underlying sense of fear. And even though Halloween was over and the goblins and ghouls had long since hung up their costumes, somehow there was this feeling that this month held a lot more fright than the last. It was November, Tuesday. November 8th, it was election day. You see, what the people knew was that the names on the ballot were more than just the names of a few candidates. The people knew that the decision that was on the ballot was going to mark the turning of the tide. The people knew that the decision that was going to be made that day was going to mark this nation going in one of two vastly different directions. This is not a story that you know, though. <laughs> so the people started to turn out for the polls, and, and they got in, and they were voting and voting and voting, and yet there was no decision that was made. It was, it was everybody was waiting on the edge of their seats to see who would win. And it took longer than many thought it would, and midnight came around, and then 1 a.m., and then 2 a.m., and still there was no elected leader. And so many people just decided to go to bed that night knowing, at the very least, one thing. In the morning, they would have a new leader. And as the dawn broke, people arose from their beds to turn on the news, and they, they were astonished. Even the heavens themselves were astonished at the result. Nobody thought the person who won the election would be the winner. And in this particular election, it was actually neither of the two frontrunners who won. It was a write-in, a third-party candidate. In fact, it was a no-name, no-face person who won this election. The frontrunner was devastated, and his campaign manager was devastated. And the, the battle for the election was hard fought, and the, the tactics used in this election process could be described as nothing less than pure warfare. And it was a third-party candidate who won. The year, 1046 B.C., the people, Israel, God's chosen nation. And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel 
Yahweh's campaign manager. <laughs> at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. So now appoint for us a king who will judge us like all the other nations. Appoint for us a man king who will judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Those are serious words. See, it wasn't Yahweh, the true king. It wasn't the other candidate. It was this no-name, no-face man-king that the people elected that day. Now you might be thinking, now Craig, obviously that's not how it went down with the election and all that. And I get it. But unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the past 12 months in our country have been crazy, in particular the past month and even this week. And so as I was asked to preach on this particular weekend, maybe a month ago, I just, I, I started to feel nervous, even scared, because I, I started to think, wow, what is it going to be like in the atmosphere the weekend after elections? And I'll be honest with you, I did not think that we would have the president that we now have. I, I was wondering what it was that people in the nation were going to be feeling, and as you've seen, people in this nation are not feeling, some of them are not feeling very good at all. There's riots going on all over the place. Some people are ecstatic. Some people are devastated. Uh, suffice it to say, for every single one of us, it's affected our world. And I felt like the Lord dropped this passage in my heart. And so I think in order to fully understand what, what God would teach us through his word and through history, I want to I preach to you not only from the context of this book, but in the context of God's story and his plan for humanity, even from the very beginning, which is why I entitled this message, Make His Presence Your President. Make His Presence Your your president, because the reality is this, friends, even though we live in America and as great of a country as it is, this is not our true homeland. Amen. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost. Amen. Amen. And so I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to pursue a mighty task this morning. I'm going to attempt to walk us through 4000 years of God's story in about eight minutes. So I want to look at the, the whole context of his story that would lead us up to this particular moment in time when the people chose to elect a king of whom God declared they are rejecting me. I'm going to look at that. So it starts right here. God's plan was always his presence. His plan was always his presence. You see this in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when God created man and woman and he was walking with them in this personal relationship. There was, we see this with Adam and Eve. They, they got to experience this intimate relationship with God as they walked in the garden with him. They heard from him. His voice was there and near and dear to their hearts and he began to, to speak to them and teach them and he began to give these commandments to them that would be life-giving unto them. You know the first commandment that God gave was not a don't do commandment? 
I feel like people forget that sometimes. And, and we think that, oh, the first commandment that God gave was, don't eat of that tree. That's not actually the first commandment that God gave. The first commandment that our God gave was a commandment of abundance. The first commandment that God gave humanity was, all of this is for you. I've created it all for you. Subdue it. Enjoy of all the trees in the garden. It's all yours. And the second commandment was, just don't eat of that one tree. That one tree. And God knew that what his desire was is that he would walk in perfect relationship, his presence and our presence in perfect relationship, and yet it was our disbelief that led us to disobedience. That's really the root cause of what happened with Adam and Eve, and it's the root cause of what happens in our life, isn't it? You see, we see the serpent come into the scene, and he begins to tempt them, and he begins to ask these questions. He says, did God really say to you that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, Eve, knowing that he was deceiving and wrong, said, no, no, that's not what he said. He, he, he said we could eat of the trees in the garden, but he, he said don't eat of that tree in the garden, and don't even touch it, for the day that you do that, you will die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die, for God knows that if you eat of that tree, you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. You see, the temptation was to distrust that God actually had our best in mind. It was something that was stirred up in the heart of man that said, wait, is this God that claims to be good really good for me? And so they gave into this distrust, and they took matters into their own hand. And, and you know the story. You know how it goes. Because they distrusted and disobeyed God, there was separation. Sin entered the scene, and humanity was separated from the presence of God. And there was a rift in the plan that he had for us that is this, this perfect, intimate relationship between God and man, and now there was this separation that came in. And you and I, we, we all experience this separation. That's what sin does in our life. It separates us from the presence of God. And yet his love wouldn't let us go. Because God has always been and will always will be so desperately and passionately in love with his creation and in love with his people, he just wouldn't let us go. He had to provide a way to reconcile relationship from humans to himself. And so he came to this man named Abram, and he made a covenant agreement with him. And he said, I'm going to bless you, Abram, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And he contracted this relational agreement. He said, I'm going to be your God. And your people are going to be my people. And he started again this personal God-to-man relationship with humanity. And after some years, by no fault of their own, and you might know the story through Joseph and how those people made their way into Egypt. And after some number of years, a new pharaoh came in and he started to enslave God's people. And God's people started crying out to God, saying, deliver us from these oppressors. And so God, knowing, the, knowing how they were feeling and knowing what they were going through, says, I have heard their cries. I have seen their struggle. I have come down and I care. And now I'm sending you, Moses, to deliver them out and take them into a promised land. Because God always delivers for a destination. 
So as God took his people out of Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, it was for a destination. And on their way to the destination that God had for them, their promised land, he started to unwind for them and unravel and, and pour out to them through his voice, through his servant Moses, what it was that his character was and what it was that his law was and what it was that his desires would be for his people. And so he gave what we know as the law, the Torah, or the, the Pentateuch. He gave the Ten Commandments scrolled in the, the tablets of stone. And he started to line out for his people what it was that God was holy and set apart. He started to line out for his people what it would look like for his people to be set apart from the ways of the world. And something that we must realize is that in this time, as he was, as he was describing for his people all of the laws and how he wanted things done, he put his presence in a particular place. I don't know if you've ever known that or noticed that before, but it's important, especially to this message, that we, that we grasp exactly what it was that God did. And I, I can't really say why he did it this way, and it's hard for us to understand, but this is actually what happened at this moment in time. He put his presence in a particular place, and that place was found in the context, in the center of what was known as the tabernacle. If you, if you want to imagine in your head, the tabernacle would be sort of the church that God asked his people to set up at the time. It didn't look like the church building that we have. It was, it was more of a, a compound that had a, a fence around the outside, and then it was open air. And what would happen is you'd enter through one uh, doorway to the compound, and there right at the beginning you'd find an altar, and a priest would be waiting there. And people like you and I, we would come into the tabernacle with our sacrifices because on the altar... In the tabernacle was the place that humanity would meet with God. It was the place that we would bring our offering and our sacrifice and put it on the altar as a way of obtaining atonement, as a way of being made right again with God. And then there in the center of the tabernacle was a covered tent, and there was two rooms in that tent. And the inner room the smallest room in that tent was called the Holy of Holies, and this was the place that the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was, you could consider it, if you think about it, just like a box, really. It was a box covered in gold, and what it held inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of stone. But what's really important to understand about the Ark of the Covenant and this central place called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle is that that was the place that the manifest presence of God dwelt. Again, I don't know why it necessarily was that way. And of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. I mean, he holds the world in his hand. And, and that's true. But at this, at this moment in history, he chose to put his manifest presence right there in that particular location. And, and, and it, it revealed itself in different ways. Sometimes it was a, a pillar of cloud that was going up from the tabernacle. Sometimes it was a pillar of fire. And when, when the pillar of cloud, the presence of God would move, that was the, the sign to the people that they needed to move because they were to follow the presence. And you know the story, after some 40 years of them wandering around in the desert and, and getting lost and disbelieving and so disobeying, they eventually were brought into the promised land and his promise required purity. 
And so this was God's commandment to the people. As you enter the promised land, you are to completely get rid of all foreign gods and foreign worship. You are to rid the land of everything else that does not represent me. Because his promise requires purity. And so they entered the land and they began uh, to conquest the land and take over the land. But what we found is that they did not. They did not completely destroy the temptations to follow these other false gods in the land. And so what we see is the same thing that you and I see in our life. That sin often leads to cycles of struggle. And this is what happened after they, they entered the land. God's people finally entered into his promised land. They, they struggled over and over and over with following foreign gods and turning away from their true king, Yahweh. And so it was this cycle that would continue for 300 years. If you read the book of Judges, this is where you would find a situation excuse me, after situation where they would turn from God and then they would, they would find themselves at rock bottom and then they'd find themselves crying out to God and then God would send them a judge or a person to lead them back to focusing on Yahweh and then they would be built back up again and then sure enough, they'd repeat the cycle over and over and over again. You ever find yourself in that same struggle in life? You're not alone. God's people have been doing it forever. God said to them, get rid of all of the influence that would sway you away from me. Utterly destroy the foreign gods from the land. You know, God doesn't ask us, he doesn't command us to be able to overcome the giants that we face. He doesn't tell us you must be able to overcome every struggle in your life. What he's asking us is to be willing to do it. You know, God is unable to overcome for us the things that we are unwilling to give to him. This is what we see in them. It wasn't that, that God had asked them to, do, to just be, overcome all these things. He's saying, I, I'm asking you to be willing to push those things aside, and I will win the battles for you. And yet we see, what we see in them is an unwillingness. And so their disobedience led to their destruction. And because they disobeyed, they disobeyed and they were unwilling to rid the land of foreign gods, they began to be destroyed by foreign armies. And this is just really a natural rule of law in our life. When we follow things other than God and we, we face these things that tear us down in life, that's, that's, that's just a natural outcome. And I want to talk for a minute about the particular gods that they chose to worship. You may have heard these names in the Bible before, uh, and, and there were a number of different ones, but these are the names that sort of come up over and over and over again is the God called Baal and the goddess called Asherah. I don't know if you've ever known really what those two names signify, but for, for uh, our purposes today, let's just say that it was Baal and Asherah who were on the ballot ticket. They're running for election. And this was their platform. Baal was the little G god of vegetation and produce. And his VP, Asherah, she was a sex goddess. She was the goddess of fertility. 
And so what, what I'm really inviting you to understand this morning is that what they weren't doing was merely bowing down to these wooden carvings and idols in just sort of some random way. What the people were doing was looking to these false gods to be both the God that would produce life and the God that would sustain life. A job that belongs to one person and one person alone, and that is the creator of the universe, Yahweh. And so you need to understand that it wasn't just this random, like, bowing down to these statues. It was this inner heart motive in humanity that was worshiping these gods by way of saying, we're going to pray to you, we're going to worship you, we're going to put our eyes on you and trust you for life and the sustaining of life. It's a very different platform than Yahweh who is saying, my children, I created you. I gave you life. I'm giving you the breath in your lungs. I am the only true God. Would you turn and follow me? And so where we find ourselves right here in this particular passage is because they did not purify the land, because they did not purify their minds, because they did not purify their lives of these foreign gods, and they allowed these gods to sway them and to turn them away to disobedience, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. That is to say that the very presence of God was taken away from the people of God. And there was a complete lacking of power and life in the land. And that is the context that brings us to where we are right here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start here in 1 Samuel 7. Starting in verse 1. It says this, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated, the son of Eli uh, they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, and a long time passed, some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You see, the Philistines got tired of having the ark in their land, and that's a whole other sermon because it wasn't really working out for them, and they finally just sent the ark back to Israel. But God's presence deserves its proper position. So they send the ark back to Israel, and instead of putting the presence and the ark of the covenant in its proper position, which should have been in the city of Shiloh, they let it remain in this little outskirt town to be looked after by this outskirt person. The presence of God was finally returned to the people of God, and yet they did not put the presence of God in his proper position. Did you know that just because God is in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean he's in the center of your life? And God's presence deserves the central position. God's presence deserves the seat on the throne of your life. And the people of God, though they had welcomed the ark and the presence of God back into the land, they did not put the presence of God in its proper position. And because of that, they started to lament and know their need for him even more. And they cried out to God. And Samuel says, a returning heart needs to be a repentant heart. Verse 3, Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then... Put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. 
and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah, and they served the Lord only. If, then, so. You know there's a difference between confession and repentance? Confession is, is something that's very good in our life, and it's something that sometimes we even have a hard time bringing ourselves to, though confession really is like the opening of the door. Confession is when we can find our, ourselves in a place where we're, we're ready and willing and able to, to freely confess our fault and our wrong before a holy God. But repentance is actually something different than that. Repentance is after you've opened that door. Repentance is like going this direction in life. Repentance would be turning around and walking the other direction. And this is exactly what Samuel's saying to the people of God is, if, if you're really returning to God, if you're really opening that door, you must turn around and go the other direction. You must turn from the, the, the uh, gods that you've been worshiping and turn fully and completely towards the true King Yahweh. Amen. And yet fear can often lead to failure. Verse seven, now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. And the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the people of Israel heard of it. And they were afraid because of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. I get it that fear can be a very real thing in our life. Have you been feeling the fear in our nation these days? You see, what, what had happened with them is that they, they finally welcomed the presence of God back in, and, and they're listening to God's ambassador, it, it, it appears, and he's saying to them, turn away from, from this president that you've been following and turn fully and elect Yahweh as your king again. And when you do that, he will protect you. He will go to war for you. He will battle for you. And yet, even though they had welcomed God into their land and into their life again, there's still this fear that was facing them. The Philistines were still on their tails. You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to deal with it. And godly courage is the choice to look to the king to overcome for you on your behalf. Courage is a choice to put your faith in the thing that's deserving of your faith instead of putting your eyes on what's in the flesh. But it was their fear that led them to elect a man king. Which brings us back to where we started. It leads us up to this same passage that the people... And the elders gathered together and came to Samuel. And they said, Behold, you're old and your sons are not following your ways, so elect for us a king. And it displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, It's not you that they're rejecting, it's me. It's me that they're rejecting. What the people chose at that time for the first time in history was an earthly king to rule them instead of an eternal king. They chose an earthly king instead of an eternal king. 
And so to, to, to bring this all together, I want to talk about the meaning of this message. What, what is the meaning of this message? You might be wondering, are you, is this like a, are you talking about politics and what's going on in our day and time? Are you talking about something else? What exactly is it that you're talking about, Craig? And I, I'll submit this to you. I'm not even really primarily talking about our political system. I love the nation that we live in. Man, I, I, I love uh, the freedoms that we have. I love our veterans. I love this country. But what I've seen and felt and experienced in our culture in this day and time is, is so much intense looking to our, our system and politics and our society to be the thing that would sustain us and grant us life and security that I think we're losing the focus on the thing that should really be on the throne of our life. I mean, just look around at the, the attention, the focus that we've been putting in this political election. Now, I'm not saying that I'm against a president. Hallelujah that we have a president. I'm not saying really honestly that like, I'm against the, the kings of the time. Like David was a great king. We get that. But I don't know if you know this or not. If you were to move forward throughout history and read the rest of the Old Testament, what happened was of the, of the 40 or so, plus or minus, kings of Israel and Judah, there was only a handful of them that actually led the people towards pursuing God and righteousness. Amen. And so what's really going on in this election was that God knew that whether it was that the people were following another god or whether it was that the people were choosing a man king, what he knew was going on in their spirit was that they were committing the same sin. And that is that they were looking to some other source to be their means of life and protection and sustaining. This is why God said, they're rejecting me as being their king. And, and you, know, you know the history and the story that, of course, you know, it went up and down and back and forth and they would turn back to God even though they still had a king. But ultimately speaking, this is what happened for the people of God. They elected these kings, these human kings, and most of them led the people further away from God instead of closer to him. And so what I felt like God was saying through this scripture and through his story to us was that whether it's in the political realm or your home life or your dating life or your financial life have you elected anything else to take the primary position of leadership in your world because if you have I would ask you to make his presence your leader. Make his presence your king. The thing that I find, found, find most profound about the story of God is this. That the presence of God was dwelling in a particular place. The middle of the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant and later in the middle of the temple behind the same curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world. You know, a priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies into the presence of God one time a year. They tied a rope around his ankle just in case he died in the presence of God so they could pull him out. That's true. The presence of God was so holy and glorious that it was in that one particular location. But then God sent his son, Jesus, 
And as Jesus hung on that cross, dying for the sins of all humanity, I don't know if you've caught this before, but as he breathed his last breath on the cross, the, the curtain that was in the temple some miles away tore from the top to the bottom, signifying one thing, that it, the presence of God was no longer gonna stay in one particular location. The presence of God was now going to dwell in the new temple of God, which is the people of God in our spirits. You see, if you have Christ, you have the presence of God dwelling inside of you. Do you grasp the power that that is inside of you? The Bible says the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is living inside of you. But I wonder if you've just given him a place in the land, a place in your heart, instead of the center of your heart. His presence is so sweet. Have you ever felt the presence of God before? Have you ever opened up the ears of your heart to hear from the presence of God? I know many of you have, and we're so thankful for a church like this where so often as leaders, we're, we're just blessed. We hear people give us these testimonies that, wow, just when I walked in the building, I could feel the presence of God. And we know that's not us. That's not us. That's the presence of God. But sometimes we turn our face from longing, searching after hearing that voice and longing and searching after that king. And I wonder if this morning you would put him back in his proper position the pedestal that he deserves. I want to close with this thought. The Hebrew word for presence is panim. And in the Old Testament, that word uh, is translated in most of our English translations 76 times as presence. Panim, translated presence. But I was blown away when I found this out of studying yesterday, even the Lord gave me this as a gift, I think right before I preached. 390 times, that same exact word is translated face. Face. God wants us to know his presence as if looking at him face to face. I was putting my son in the car once and strapping him in his little car seat. And the light must have just been right that day in that particular moment in time that I was, I was getting real close to him, strapping him in, and I looked in his face and I could actually see myself in his pupil. So I pulled my phone out real quick and took a picture and posted it on social media because that's what you should do. <laughs> I mean, a picture's not really a picture unless everybody sees it on social media. But at that moment, the Lord spoke to me this profound sermon. He said, I want to be the apple of your eye. I want my voice to be the voice that you listen to above any other voice. I want my word to be the thing that you go to first in the morning instead of your phone and scrolling through Facebook. I want my heart 
to be the heart that you search after, that you long for, the heart even that you desire to have for yourself as you interact with a broken world. I think the invitation this afternoon is that we would direct our gaze and our faces back towards the face and the presence of God and invite him again to take his rightful position in our lives. Just stand to your feet.